Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Well, a very warm welcome to all of you to this very brand new and wonderful auditorium. My name is Ben Quash and I'm Professor of Christianity and the Arts at King's College London. And the reason that we have tonight's uh, event for the benefit of a larger audience is because it's sitting in the middle of a two-day symposium, a more intensive symposium, in which 20 scholars from the backgrounds of art history and theology and biblical studies are sitting in the British Academy room just nearby and thinking very hard about the relationship of uh, modern and contemporary art and Christian theological tradition and what the status of that relationship is today. And it's the first of four events which will take place across four years in four different world cities. Um, next year, we hope in, we're next year in Chicago, the following year in Berlin, and finally in another American location that we haven't yet determined, um, if you want to vote for a possible fourth weekend. <laughs> and in each case, we want the intensive work within the symposium to also feed into and be informed by a public-facing event in which we hear the voices of many other people with an interest. Those four years will also have four distinctive themes, but all of them marked by art and Christianity and then some other connective word in the middle. So not just and, but something more interesting than just and. Uh, and this year it's with, art with Christianity. So that's been the overarching theme. Next year it'll be art about. Uh, the year after that, art for Christianity. And in the final year, art instead of or art against, maybe. We haven't decided. But you can see that there are different forms of configuring this relationship. And we want to explore them all and also see how they overlap and complicate one another. I won't say anything else. I'm going to hand over to Tim Marlowe, who's welcomed us here and hosted us here at the Royal Academy. It's been wonderful to be here. It's great to be here tonight. Thank you for coming, Tim. Thank you. The Royal Academy has been, but should be more of a place of engagement with other disciplines, other art forms, other cultures, um, other approaches. Um, I'm not positing Christianity as something fundamentally other, there are many strong overlaps and, between art and Christianity and art and religion. That's one of the things we're going to tease out today. But I also like the fact that the academy is a place where conversations take place behind closed doors, fights occur, everything is on the table to be debated. But we also need to make manifest a public aspect of this. So this is exemplary for the way the new academy is going to be. We fight in the day and then we have an event in the evening and we share with you all. Actually, that isn't in any way a reflection of what's just gone on theologically and art historically in the private room, but there's an element of that. Um, I have a completely extraneous role tonight. I thought that chairing a discussion, it would just be wind up and then sit back. It is, but in a more nuanced way, because Anthony and Rowan have had a conversation earlier this week. Uh, Anthony has then responded by producing a selection of images that he didn't suggest that we made the, the structure of the conversation, but they were available for us to discuss if we wanted to. And I think it's a much better approach to go straight to those images of work where there might maybe an affinity or a dialogue, and I'll steer it back to spiritualism and religion or imminence or transcendence or negation or numidism or animalism or whatever it may be, or not. So, without further ado, and you've noticed I haven't actually introduced Anthony Gormley, RA, Knight of the Realm, um, the, the currently with an exhibition in Kettlejar, because I don't need to, and I certainly don't need to introduce Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury and current Master of Magdalen College. Um, it really is a pointless thing to introduce either of them. You all know who they are. So, let's start uh, with the premise that one of the things that is going to bring this conversation to the boil is 
the notion of purpose. That I know for you, Anthony, the purpose of art, what art is for, how we engage with it, constantly underpins your work. And I'm making the presumption, Rowan, from what I know of you, and certainly what I've read, that the purpose of humanity, its place in the grand scheme of things, is one of the things that underpins your theology and, and, and approach to religion. So uh, before we go to the first image, um, in fact, let's start with the first image, Anthony, sorry. Um, bear that in mind and explain this particular work that has a spe specific connection to Canterbury and to uh, Rowan's um, archbishop uh, or ministry there. Hello, everybody. Um, I, I, I just think this is the most fantastic room. This is the marriage of Faraday's lecture theatre at the Royal Society, uh, but with light and space. And isn't it wonderful? And isn't it, isn't it wonderful that actually what Tim has just mentioned, the idea of the Academy becoming an alive place of exchange, thinking about, in a way, how art maybe has a, has a place in making a common future. Um, I'm really delighted. The last time I was here was just for the opening of the building. Now, with all of you in it, it has a purpose. And now we're going to talk a bit about purpose. I, I was just privileged to, 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 to make this piece. Uh, a, a relative of um, Lord Mountbatten of Burma turned up at the studio with two Sainsbury um, shopping um, plastic bags full of medieval nails that she told me had come from the roof of Canterbury Cathedral and could I perhaps do something with them? And uh, <laughs> Well, part the idea that that's an everyday occurrence for a sculpture show <laughs> and just get on with it. No, but it was, that isn't so everyday and it was just so delightful and, and, and I looked at the nails and the nails were pretty delightful because they were cut nails. Each one had been made with purpose, not by a machine, but by a man or a woman, perhaps. And then to think about where this, uh, it was clear that the invitation was to make something for this extraordinary place that had been a place of pilgrimage, but also a place of, I think, contemplation, prayer, and, and, and reflection. Um, and I guess, you know, I... I, I sort of feel about sculpture, that sculpture can do this job of being a kind of antennae, a kind of catalyst, uh, and, and, and maybe work with a place by making an object. If the object is adequately open, maybe to sort of increase whatever the inherent character of that place is and perhaps give it a focus and that's where this work came from and I was thinking about Thomas Beckett I was thinking obviously about uh, I guess that idea of transubstantiation but also what what is a body and I think the, the my work on the whole has been to ask that question how can we reintroduce the body into art that in a sense was sidelined by modernism in favour of form, significant form on its own right being the real challenge for art. Could we bring the body back into the space created for art by modernism? 
which in some way invited the viewer's projection, the viewer's presence. And, and this is what I came up with, and it is made out of the nails, and it is a floating signifier, and it is open. Um, so it describes a human space in space without identifying it. It's called transport, and it's in a, in a way waiting there, like a, a trap for people's perceptions, projections, feelings, thoughts. And um, I think that it, it was made of items from the place, for the place. It is now, for me anyway, indelibly part of the place. And in a time when we're, we're, we're kind of used now to the idea of portable art as a commodity, this, I think, is a kind of resistance to that. What was your response to the work when you first saw it, Ron? It's a work that actually went on being very important to me whenever I was in the cathedral. And I was particularly conscious of it because quite often in my time, we would have um, a session the day before the ordination services where the new priests and deacons were made, a session in that space um, for, my, for me to give my pearls of wisdom to the candidates for ordination. And quite often I've, I felt rather like saying, don't bother to say anything or think anything. Just sit here with that in front of you. Because all you've said about the literal openness of this, that comes across particularly vividly simply because, of course, it allows the air to move. Which means that as you breathe and as you speak in that space, something shifts. It shifts very slowly and it shifts very unpredictably, which means there's no one definitive fix on it. And somehow that, that subtle, almost imperceptible, shifting, swaying, circulating that goes on in, in midair gave me a lot to think about in terms of the absolutely cooperative nature of the space we inhabit as human beings. We don't stand still. We don't see everything from one individual point of view. We breathe, we speak. That breathing, that speaking shifts. And yet, there it is still. You know, the, the body is there, a body, a place. We talked about this the other day. A place rather than a thing, I think, was your expression at mm -hmm. the end. That resonated enormously with me because of that sense of a, a place we cooperate in. And I don't mean by that a place where we come to cooperate about something else, but a place where we come to understand our cooperative nature, our communion-oriented nature, if you like. But I must throw one other thing in about the nails. The, obviously, the imagery of a human body made of nails has any number of resonances in a space like a church. But I also had a much less um, elevated thought about that, which was you know, we, we tack messages onto boards, onto surfaces. And I found myself thinking, what, what are the messages tacked onto that place, that space? Um, all the messages have blown away long since. But the, the drawing pins are still on the board, as it were. <laughs> And I, that, that gave me something to, 
to reflect on, something I tried writing about, actually. But uh, that, that was my first set of responses. I think, I think it is just su such a wonderful thing to be talking to Rowan in this space with all of you about something that I made some time ago, but haven't really you know, analyzed. I don't think I do that maybe enough. I, I think that you make something and then you live with it. But the, I mean, the point is that these nails are going in both directions. So the point, the, the, the sharp end of the nail <laughs> is both inside the body and outside. So that, that idea of a transfusion is very important. And I, I guess everything to do with message is problematic to me. I think that, that I, don't, I don't think of the work as being an icon in the traditional sense. In other words, this has, yes, it's got a title, but the title is as much an exhortation to the viewer's response as it is, in a way, a parallel uh, sort of material in the work. So it's not a definition. So this is called transport, and it is to do with, in, 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 in a way, perhaps the, the promise of an art object taking you to a place that you weren't able to go to were it not to exist. But also, I think very much in response to what Rowan has just said, uh, say there is no one entry point or one uh, perspective. And the, and, and the fact that, in, in a way, this is literally hanging around rather than being at the focal point of a, of a Gothic perspective, for example. Um, and I guess, you know, the, the, yes, I was brought up a Catholic. Uh, issues about, uh, you could say, incarnation or the, the nature of what it means to have a precious human uh, birth and therefore life and the, the notion of the body not, yes, not as an object in the world, but as a workshop uh, in which transformation is potentially possible. But all of those things, I think, I inherited from a monastic uh, schooling. But I think, uh, you know, has then been tr transformed through, I think, through, through uh, meditation and uh, studying particularly uh, Vipassana meditation under Goenka uh, quite intensively over two years in the early 70s. And that, that experience was, I think, probably the most transformative for me as a, I, I suppose, a seeking kind of individual. The idea that up to that point, everything that I had known in some senses had come from uh, the outside, had come from, from nurture or, or cultural kind of exchange. And simply sitting for long periods and attending to being in which the nature of the 
the body as a, as a vessel uh, uh, and a, uh, yeah, one that begins to disintegrate, literally uh, become porous. And I mean, I, I, I hope that actually all of that is better, better expressed in, 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 this, in this object than it is in the words that I might try to use for it. And what Rowan said about, in a way, what, what the, the body could be as a place of, in a way, collectivity really interests me. I often have to say this to, to, to people in assemblies like this, that in some senses the, the appearance of our body belongs to the world. We, what we look like, our faces, our, our, our features, the, the, the accidents of our appearance, in some senses belongs to, to the world at large. Um, but the thing that we, as it were, can share with the world that is independent, you could say, from those accidents, is that, uh, well, I think that internal transformation, uh, that internal, um, internal uh, you know, reflexivity, um, which in some senses can make the world bigger collectively. And I, I, I don't know, it's maybe overburdening this thing. It's, it is, in the end, just a thing that is hanging in the ceiling of... <laughs> but I think you've got to work with it, basically. Not, nothing is just a thing hanging in Canterbury Cathedral. Um, because what you've said about the, um, the relation of this to meditation, Vipassana in particular, mm. the idea there that you have to get rid of the notion that the self is, is a thing, is a mm. solid thing. You can only talk about what sits on the cushion, mm. the point of orientation. Mm. Somebody else put it, that's, that's where we begin. The body is a project, it's a collaborative venture almost, made up of what I'm aware of from one irreducible perspective, which is the fact that I, I am it, and the perception and reflection that comes to me. And as I've sometimes said to people when talking about this, the, the fact is I can't see the back of my head. If I'm going to learn about the back of my head, I need somebody else to tell me. Mm. <laughs> That's putting it very crudely, but it does mean that the body the body image is something we work on together and learn together. Mm. And therefore, the notion that the bodily world or the material world is, as some people like to think of it, um, a large cupboard full of solid lumps is the worst way we could possibly approach mm. the material world. And, and here was I thinking that this would be a theological given that you talk about nails in terms of crucifixion or violation. Um, but the, it, there is an element of violation of internal, uh, external, you, you, but you're talking more in terms of dialogue, Anthony. But of course, context fundamentally changes the way this piece is. If this was shown in a white-walled gallery, it would read differently, significantly differently to, to, to its suspension. I don't, think, I think I don't know that it would read significantly differently. There would be resonances and echoes absent because locating it, as Anthony says, um, where the body of Thomas Beckett was laid and a few, hundred, a few yards from where the living body of Christ is, is reserved. With the fabric of the building. The fabric of the building. Yeah, you know, that does give you a few extra. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to, I've got a lot to work with there, actually. <laughs> but 
there's something about the, the nature of the image, and of course we'll see it with other images, which provokes some of the same challenges, some of the same, um, well, harmonics, let's say. Well, funny you should say that. Let's look at context in a different way. A another place in Crosby mm. Beach, Liverpool. Um, why don't you start, if you wouldn't mind, with your response to this piece? Have you seen it? Not in the flesh, as it were, no. Uh -huh. Go on a good, you know, filthy day um, in, <laughs> in, in February, ideally. Mm. <laughs> mm. Well, maybe it's unfair to ask you if you haven't seen it. I was presuming that as the, these are the images you've selected that, 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 that become... No, I only, put, I only put this in, in a way, as an interlude between two works that I knew that Rowan did know. Mm. Um, but this, yeah, this is... This is put in to really kind of talk about that notion of appearance and, and then the disappearance and the idea that here are a hundred objects placed within the tide plane of a yeah, fairly industrial beach just outside Liverpool, uh, all facing nine degrees um, north of due west. Um, and it's called Another Place. It was, it was made really as a response to a very particular place, again, uh, which was Cookshaven. Cookshaven and Bravenhaven, uh, at the period of the fall of the Weimar Republic and the rise of Nazism, was a place where thousands of uh, yeah, European Jews left, left uh, Europe to, to go west, to go to America. Um, and I was invited to uh, make a work for the immigration, the old Hapag immigration halls there. Uh, and at that time, they wanted to show Field, which is another work. And I felt that that was a strange um, tautology it would be to fill these immigration halls with little homunculi. And I just, anyway, I went out and discovered the Vattenmeer. This is a extraordinary tide plane where the, where the sea comes in over seven kilometers. And anyway, uh, there were a number of other proposals, but in the end I made this work, which is basically 17 lived moments, uh, cast uh, up to six times each in now solid iron. Uh, so real objects, industrial fossils, you could say, placed within the elements, but placed in such a way that they disappear uh, as the tide comes in and then reappear as the tide goes out. And they invite us, they're about a, a kilometre and a quarter deep and about three kilometres along the beach. They're on average about 230 um, metres apart. Um, but I guess, for me, this was another way of you know, making the object somehow part of a field and inviting the viewer to be part of that field. And to put maybe, you could say art or, or uh, anyway, items of in human making into the elements to, I suppose, again, allow you to be there 
with a slightly different dimension. I think it's not very different in a, in a sense to the way that transport works in, in, in Canterbury Cathedral. And it's really just an invitation, again, just to, to, to be, to be in that place, to think about our relationship to the to horizon in particular, to maybe just think about, yeah, time, destiny, human time, biological time in relation to sidereal time, to ge ge geological time, uh, and to think about, um, in a way, where we are now. You could say the whole of hominin evolution has been about some kind of progress, often towards the West. We always think in the West that it's been towards the West, but of course, 40,000 years ago, most of us actually, Homo sapiens sapiens, went south and east, not north and west. But I guess this was asking, really, at the beginning of this new millennium, you know, where are we going? And that idea of another place, the idea of what was it that made the Pilgrim Fathers go uh, across the water? And what is it that has constantly allowed human imagination to think that there is a better place beyond the visible limit? I've, I've been very obsessed with the idea of what a horizon is, you know, uh, imagining what lies beyond, as it were, the, the, the edge of the perceivable world. And Anyway, it's now become, you know, for me, this is about, yes, there is no other place. This is, this is our, this, this material planet is part of us. We, we, we find ourselves through the conditions that it gives us. Anyway, and I guess, yeah, this was, this was an attempt in, in a way to make these highly formed things exist in the ever-changing, and you could say, unstructurable nature of the sea. And that, that's one of the things that, that strikes me most about this, that, again, there isn't a stability or total stability in these images. Their relation to the element they're in will go on changing. There's something inescapably time-bound about it, just as there is in a different way with transport, you, you can't say, that's the moment at which this, this is working. This is what you've got to look at. Because the water rises and falls, the, the weather, is the very weather changes, <laughs> very importantly. There is, again, something which is anchored, the solidity of the figures, but in constantly changing relationship to the element one another. But I also really um, warm to what you were saying about horizon and the Western horizon. Um, I, I share something of your, your fascination with that as an idea. And, and with this is one of the images that most often comes to mind when I look at this. The, um, the idea mentioned in some of the classical texts that in the, the Celtic fringe of the ancient world, the West was always the other world. And the souls had to travel across beyond that horizon, that watery horizon, to arrive home. And it's as if by setting these figures against that horizon, in the water, with that particular and very poignant 
resonance to do with refugees and all the rest. All of that is about how the, the horizon, the transition from life to life runs, runs through here and now, not a future event, not a distant event, but a, a horizon that's in which we're embedded somehow. Or Im- embedded is the wrong word with all that liquid around. <laughs> um, so you know, that's, that's part of what, what I see in that and part of how it connected with, with the transport image. I should just say that when Anthony says lived moments, it's, a, it's an interesting and important mm. distinction for him that, that each of these body forms are not portrait casts of an individual, usually Anthony. They're, um, they're, they bear witness, to use a, a religious term, to a particular moment lived and frozen that then becomes the basis of a body form that's repeated as it happens. So that gives stability, I suppose. It's mm. the, the frozen moment. Um, and I suppose the notion of the sublime is also hovering around here, although that again moves us back to Western ideology. But I'm interested in the way that the two of you are hovering around the idea of East and West here and mm. negation, the, the idea of negation, for example, or the things around nature rather than just nature itself. Um, or is that an overreading, Anthony, with knowing your uh, Buddhist interests or your, the, the, the interests of your a, past? I mean, I, you know, l- looking at an image like this that has a, you know, this is taken at, at the halfway tide point. Um, the horizon is exactly halfway uh, on the image. There's a sort of, uh, there's a, and there's a central uh, body form in it. So are we coming or going? We don't know. Well, yeah, no, but I think that whole, the, I guess what I was going to say is the two issues that face humankind uh, in terms of survival are, you know, global warming generally and the rising of the sea and then the fact that 65 million of us are homeless and we see it every day so the, this this the issue you could say this started from from a another moment not a lady with two bags full of nails but uh, an invitation um, from the Schleswig-Holstein Kunstverein uh, to make a work in response to a particular place with a particular history that then hopefully opens up. And that's what I think is m- magical about this kind of co- collaboration, because it is a collab- this, this work that is now outside Liverpool would not have been possible without that I- invitation and without that invitation to think about a particular you know, moment in European history but now it, it's open to something so much bigger. And I, I think of these, you know, each of these, yes, is the memory of a particular body in a particular sequence of breathing, um, but in a sense is, is a place where anybody could be. And we all know what it, what it feels like to walk out, particularly into a cold uh, English Channel Sea. Uh, we, we, there, there is... I think within this work, a kind of, yeah, there's a, there's a kind of universal appeal of empathy. You, you know what that feels like, but then it's, it, it's hopefully given this sort of broader potential for, for, for resonance. Mm. Mm. Because what, what comes to me in, in the light of that is, in a sense, it's an image both of loss and of homecoming. Where are they, where are they going? Where are they coming from? Mm. 
Who knows? And yet, given all that's been said about the context, there's a homecoming theme as well. That, yeah, I mean, I, I want this to say, this is what, you know, this is where we are. And we, in some way, in asking that question, what in a post-industrial time can we call human nature? Uh, that's a big question. And, and, and we, we will only, I, I think, be able to answer it in the context of the elemental. And, and, and that's yes. what the question that, that this asks. And I think that all of, the, all of the works are, in a way, for me anyway, a, a way of asking questions. Can I just, sorry, Ren, do you mind? Can I just br briefly, because I think we, we should keep focused on images and, and, and talk about yes, I'm aware, e right? existentially where we are now. But, but is, is, um, do, do you, you seem, your approach is both poetic, theological, but generous spirited and, and open. And you seem to not always see images specifically in a religious context in terms of the manifestation of the divine and so on. There are obviously is a deep tradition in Western art from which Anthony emerges, even if he repudiates, of art with religious purpose, art for the promotion of, for the teaching of, for the enlightenment of, 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 of religious belief, Christian belief. Um, do you distinguish now, today, between uh, art that has that kind of purpose and Anthony's humanist existential wrestlings with who we are, what's the purpose of art and so on? Or is that now a cultural condition that those distinctions are completely false or meaningless? First of all, I don't think that art with religious purpose is a particularly strong thing to hang anything on. Art with religious purpose is, um, if you define it in those terms, art you can buy in religious art shops. And I, you know, I prefer art. <laughs> um, because what we're talking about, surely, is, speaking as a theologian anyway, um, what we're talking about is what it is in our human agency, our human engagement with the stuff we are and the stuff we live in, what it is about that that uncovers again and again the more than we thought, the more than we saw, the more than we knew. Um, now, in some contexts, what I would call genuine traditional religious art works simply because it, it uncovers that. It, it drops down into the well of, of reality so that a, a work of art which has a religious subject, um, whether it's the sculptures at Chartres, whether it's Rembrandt's Prodigal Son, or whether it's André Rublev's Trinity icon, which is another, another story. Um, all of those work not because they arouse in you religious feelings, that you know, little subcategory of religious feeling, but because they drop into reality at, at a depth. And so that's what I listen and look for in serious art. Um, I mentioned the, the Rublev thing, which takes me back a little bit to a phrase you used earlier, Anthony, about not producing an icon. Um, and I think I'd, I'd quibble a bit and say the icon in the, the full Eastern Christian sense is very much a place, an invitation to 
organized space around not a representation of, of an idea or some, of some absent story or reality. Um, and I'd probably annoyingly say that I think transport is an icon in that sense as this is, because it, this is because it constructs a space in which transformation happens. I think this is really the nub. I mean, I think this is really important to, to dwell on for a bit. Um, I will. No, no, you dwell. We'll just look. Okay, all right. Okay. But I mean, this is very much uh, the point. It is, it is, it is. <laughs> the, no, but the, the, this is... So when I question or anyway try to distance myself from what I think of as, uh, in a way, the iconic, it is the, the Nama Rupa or the name and form, the mm -hmm. recognition of Christos Pankrator or indeed the crucifixion as, in, in, in a sense, the representation of a historic uh, yeah, uh, man who was also God, or God who was the creator of all things. Uh, and it's really, it, it's, it's problematic for me because I'm aware that in, in many senses, I want to make works that do, I mean, I, 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 you know, if I think about the Rublev Trinity, or I think about uh, Michelangelo's Rondonini Pieta, mm. they, they do to me something that is completely irrespective of the degree to which they represent as it were, uh, you know, the, the icons of Christian belief. They invite me to be still and mm -hmm. to dwell in the space that they identify. In the, in the case of the Rublev, that blue that somehow is about um, a, a certain kind of quality of calm, um, and waiting, perhaps. Um, and it's really awkward because, in a, in a, in a sense, in a, in a very um, yeah, noisy, both visually and, and acoustically, world, the, the reason that I'm very happy to be in the crypt in, in Canterbury and very happy to be in a space like this is that, in a, in a sense, both of those spaces are in the world but not of the world in the sense of most of our lives being connected to, I don't know, um, being put to work or having to fetch and carry things. And that they give a opportunity for a kind of reflexivity. And I, and I, I mean, you know, the, the, the fact is that that is what, I think that's the prerequisite of the kind of engagement that I want with the work, that actually I, I, want, I want people to dwell for a while with the work, even if there isn't very much work there. This, this we should say, is Kettle's Yard. It's a piece called Coordinates. It's, a, it's, a, it's an exhibition that's just opened, and it's just over the way from your college. It is indeed, and I have, I have been to see it. It's good. <laughs> um, so so the, just go back to the image. The, 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 so here are two horizons. 
that I associate with the horizon, which is why I put the, the, the image of, of another place in. And what this, these are two horizontal lines, one of which is actually more or less at eye level when you come in and comes above your head. And the other one that actually is lower in this slide is just, just above your head, so it's about uh, two meters. But what I'm, what I'm interested in, in, in a sense, is again, bringing inside perceptual triggers that actually are, well, to do with really primal, probably basal kind of functions of the brain that we, that we are constantly registering, as it were, this horizon, because that's where, where we find ourselves. And anyway, you could say, well, yeah, that's a bit pretentious, these just two bits of steel introduced. But um, what's, what's, what, what interests me is actually how this affects you uh, haptically uh, and actually standing uh, as in the position from which this photograph is taken, there is a strange dysphasia. You actually feel a certain disorientation, mm -hmm. which then two slides further on go on from oh, and more and one more um, and one more, sorry, also exists in relation to the vertical and horizontal uh, which previous slide uh, looks like a cross. You try to focus on one or the other, and you can't focus on both. So this insists in this photograph that they are co-planar, that they exist. And, and, and in a sense, maybe all of those cultural kind of uh, I know, programmings that happen, you read that as, yes, the, the, the hairs on a, on a, on a gun, you read it as a sort of very minimal cross. Uh, but then as you move in relation to it, something else happens. Let's find out what Rowan thinks of it haptically, theologically, poetically, phenomenologically, and then some. Anything else? Yes, anything else you can try So no pressure. How is it for you? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's exactly that, that unsettlement of the space. Which, which is so immediate when you go into Kettle's Yard. Kettle's Yard, which is itself, of course, a, a unique space, isn't it? And, mm, wonderful. And a uh, yeah. place which is in and not of. Yeah. Mm. But I think because of the way in which the, the steel rods run out of the space you sort of thought they were in, or your, your imagination instinctively contains them, and they're not actually contained. That's, that's one of the things. They run across connecting different spaces. And also, as you walk around, your sense of the angle of these rods, the, the angles open or close, um, they, they don't, again, like the other things we've been talking about, they don't sit still. You are collaborating in the making of an intelligible space all the time. And the, the human figures within these unsettling spaces have a similar sort of unsettling effect. And when I say unsettling, I don't mean disturbing or distressing. I mean the sort of churn that takes, takes you out of routine perception and with this very spare aesthetic tells you certain things. Levitation, I suppose. Well, my, my thought about that actually was... Um, 
pretentiousness alert. Uh, <laughs> Kierkegaard talking about um, the human being suspended over 70,000 fathoms or whatever. I thought, well, if I, were, if I were lying there, I wouldn't know whether it was six inches or 70,000 fathoms underneath me. But we're, we're poised somewhere in, in that potentially meaningful void, which here we're invited to make sense of and contemplate and sit with. In a way, um, it's about, about grasping something of contingency, createdness, and the immense liberty of understanding, shaping, reflecting the space that's around us. I'm not putting that very well, but I, I found these obscurely very moving images indeed because of that, because of the, the frailty of every particular place you stand, and yet the, the real materiality and solidity of the whole thing. It's, it's back to the homelessness, the, the homecoming and loss thing, the fragility and solidity, so much to do with the central paradoxes of, of our human experience, which, again, as a religious believer, has deep echoes for me. I'm not just something fixed, plugged into a space. I'm not, I'm not a given. I'm summoned always to be making sense along with, making sense of space, making sense of matter. Um, and when I'm most distant from what I think of as myself, I'm often most clearly on the way to some sort of home. But I won't rub it on. It's just that those spaces are intensely evocative and powerful to me. Something else, too, that Anthony's done this kind of thing many times. But for people seeing this for the first time, there is a sense of the miraculous. I mean, how is that thing attached to the wall? I mean, it's not that difficult. But it, it, nonetheless, it raises that issue. And I suppose, Anthony, you wouldn't plead guilty to um, exploring the trope of the miracle. But you must have a sense of art's role in depicting... The miraculous, it's part of the theological... And how, how do you do the miraculous? It makes me think of G.K. Chesterton's remark that you understand creation best if you, so to speak, turn everything upside down in your mind and think not that you're walking safely on a, a nice, convenient, flat surface, but that you're miraculously suspended upside down, your feet are mysteriously moving along a surface that's above you. Um, and that rather exhilarating sense of the sheer strangeness of being, the, the miraculous that's buried in everything and sometimes comes through in what we call miracle, but a miraculousness that's, that's just there. So yes, the, the Chesterton image was, was in my mind as I looked at that. But I think, I think you know, for, for me, that's the best thing that art can do, return you to the miracle of being itself. Hmm. So, the, and that sounds very pretentious, but I mean, the, this is, you know, I, I, I hope that this is literally a fulcrum, it's a lever, in which all of the certainties about, well, what Rowan was just saying, the material world being in some sense an absolute, are put into question. And, and, and the way that architecture wants to reinforce a sense of the stability and continuity 
of our built environment. And that just, I mean, it's a very simple gesture to, to put this. It's important to say, that, you know, this is a massive body again, like the, the pieces in the sea. Three quarters of a ton of solid iron. Uh, it's a, could have been a meteorite. It's made of the same material. If you go down a thousand kilometers through the crust of this earth, you find exactly this material. This is what, in a, in a sense, is keeping us on our journey through space. But I guess I'm, I'm wanting to think about what sculpture is as a marker in space, but also as a spatial displacement, and think about what space is in its broadest terms. So the, the, relationship, the relationship with, as it were, the determinism of architecture being then contrasted with this, these, you could say, three coordinates, which is the way that the rational human mind has decided to measure or make sensible uh, the, the, the fact that space is ever extensive. Um, I hope that that work, that work on the wall in some way undermines that. And suddenly, I mean, well, Rowan couldn't have put it better. I mean, suddenly you're, you're, you're standing on, on a wall because the, the piece is standing on a wall. You're, 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 uh, if, if the piece is on the floor, then, then you're on a wall. Um, the, the idea that actually there is no stability, that we are spinning around our own axis on this planet at some extraordinary speed, something like 1,300 kilometers an, an, an hour, and that we're spinning around the sun at an extraordinary speed, that, that actually that whole notion of stability and indeed the, the, the consistency of space itself, it's, it's all illusory. Yeah, I'm feeling that acutely now. So this, moving on to space, was queued up, and, and obviously this relates to coordinate, but in a way it doesn't. A piece called Breathing Room, so it's, this is illuminated, this is not. Um, the role of... Well, no, the, the, the role of the viewer and the relationship between the artwork and the viewer or bearing witness or empathy or where we are in the scheme of things is pretty clear here. Um, pick it up, Anthony. Well, no, I, I get, this is a work called Breathing Room. So this is, this is um, nearly uh, 3,000 lux of uh, yeah, very bright light. Uh, then go back to the other one, uh, and then these volumes that are all consistent, these are all uh, 120 cubic meter spaces that have been stretched and placed one inside the other, making a kind of three-dimensional mandala. Uh, this is nothing, this is, this is again, the body, the, the body is not imaged here, it's the body that you bring into the work that then becomes the subject of the work. And the, the, the viewer becomes the viewed for other viewers. And, and the dialectic is between, as it were, this interrogative light, where some people... So it's, very, it, it's basically dark for uh, about 10 minutes, and there's just this luminous... Some people think that it is a kind of hologram, so they go up and want to touch, touch it, but it's just aluminium bar. 
And then there's 40 seconds of this absolutely relentless light that is the light of interrogation. This is what uh, Beria used when he was, you know, anyway, and, and there's no escape. And you can see the veins underneath the skin of people. And the, anyway, w what I was interested in here was, in a, in a sense, the, well, the same thing that I've, I hope that I've achieved in much simpler means with coordinate, that here I, I, I want you to be aware of your relationship to others in the room, to, in, in a sense, the delusions of perspectival uh, space, because this is using perspective in a way to, to destroy perspective. And you have to play a kind of hopscotch <laughs> to, uh, to negotiate this, this space. But it's really, again, I mean, it's, it, this is a trap as much as, as transport was a, 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 a trap. Um, and I, I wasn't sure how this would work when I made it first. I've now made it about 10 times. And every time it's different because it's in relation to the given space of a room. Uh, and I never realized how much people would take the opportunity to actually linger longer. Um, and I, I guess for me, this is, this is a meditation on our built environment and the fact that we are the only species that builds, as it were, a nest, according to Euclidean, <laughs> Euclidean principles of absolute horizontal and vertical uh, planes. And, and then that we're basically, we, we, we have decided that we're happy to live in boxes. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, bees live for a short time in a hexagonal cell, uh, but then escape that cell. We seem now to have passed the point where we actually can't escape the cell. So in some way, we are part of our built, gridded, urban environment. And, and, and we now know by the middle of this century, over three quarters of our species will be bound to the city. Uh, so our survival, our species survival, in some senses, is now uh, ir irreducibly linked to this structural as it were, context. And this is our second body. And in a sense, the work as it's evolved has increasingly meditated on that and asked the question, is it possible to replace, as it were, if, if, if we are a mind uh, given the vehicle of a body and the body lives then in a building, can we use the language of the building of architecture of this Euclidean orthogonal geometry uh, to talk about actually the first-hand experience of, of embodiedness. The question I'm left with there is, is about, about the light and whether it's hostile, creative, both. It's very hostile when you first experience yeah. it. Mm. Mm. And whether that says something about, again, going into the religious register for a moment, about the, all the ways in which religious people talk about the, the terror of the holy, or the true, the divine, um, as something that has to be gone through, that has to be assimilated before you get any sense that that perception, that, that illumination 
is also your life or your release. And I, that, that's just one of the things that comes to me here. If, if this is indeed, as, as you say, Anthony, a, a meditation on the kinds of space we live in and what they do to our perception of self and other. But I, I guess my, my main initial feeling about it was we are, each of us all the time, a point in an infinite number of possible relations and constructions of space. Just as, uh, you know, physicists like to make your flesh creep by saying there are so many neutrinos rushing through your body at any given mm. moment, and you start looking around anxiously. Mm. So, so here, you, you know that you are, you are in more diagrams than your mind can get, get around fractals and geometric spaces in, in which you stand, therefore which connect you in different directions, are unmappable and unfathomable. And to be in, in the midst of that is just to get some sense of sheer diversity of what's not seen, so that our screening out of some of the dimensions of our reality, which we have to do in order to stay alive, sometimes needs a bit of lifting or a bit of nudging aside, that we think we are in fact operating with far less awareness of our environment than we, we normally do. We have two works left, but no, 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 I'm pressing those up. We're, going, we're going out to the floor nice. now. So it's a beautiful way to end, or the, the, the formal part. So less formally, uh, but could you formally wait for the microphone to come? Uh, let's throw Anthony and Rowan out to a distinguished audience of historians, uh, theologians, and um, interested members of all sorts of other uh, disciplines. Um, who'd like to ask the first question? Thank you very much, both of you. Um, as you can tell from the accent, I'm neither a Londoner nor a Brit. And, and we see these structures around town of these, and, and even forming the question kind of maybe helps me answer the question, which I haven't, in my busyness of walking around London and meetings and such, haven't probably, but there's some fragile structures, fragile um, human uh, silhouettes or, or, or forms, let's call them that, um, in precocious places around the city. And um, I guess I could interpret it as, it looks like someone's about to fall off um, intentionally or unintentionally, and, and life is dangerous. But as, as a visitor, how would you like me to interpret or start to interpret that I know as as the audience, I have the responsibility to interpret it, but, but how would you like me to look at it? And then Rowan, how would you, or, or Archbishop, how would you like us to consider it theologically? Because- Can I just ask you, are you talking about a specific Anthony work, Event Horizon? Yeah, yeah, are, yeah. Are, aren't, aren't there like the, the yeah, 13 bodies around the city in, or something like that? Yeah, that, New York, that are, they've been in, just to explain, they've been in New York, Hong Kong, Sao Paulo, Brasilia. So this is a, this is a temporary work of oh, got works. It. But, the, so they're not there now. There are works by Anthony on buildings. There's one actually just around the corner in Berlin tonight. Yeah. So let's, that's, it's a good question. No, let's, okay. Yeah. There is no one way. And I think that immediate response that happened both here and in New York of uh, people calling the emergency services saying there's a jumper uh, on top of, uh, yeah, on the 25th floor of the Empire State Building, um, I think is very natural, immediate gut response to a body in danger. 
But I think that that immediate reaction very quickly is followed by a questioning. Oh, is that really a human being or is it the image of a human being? Or uh, you could say that all of the all, all all of these works in some senses are a provocation, a provocation that, that ask I think they, they all ask existential questions. And I guess, uh, for me, Event Horizon was a, a way of doing a similar work to what another place did, but doing it at the, at the skyline, which in, in terms of New York, or, or in, indeed even along the river in London, is, is a skyline created by, by humanly built structures. And in a sense, put, put these watchers, because I think that they are watchers, um, uh, on, on, on that horizon edge. I think for two, for two reasons. One is reflexivity. In other words, um, you know, what, I think that question, you know, are they real bodies? No, they're not. They are surrogate bodies. Then uh, you know, what are they for? And, I, did, I, I, I was just very pleased with what happened, certainly on Waterloo Bridge, for example, where there were two works on the ground that were on the pavement uh, that connected um, basically the Old Witch to, to Waterloo, where thousands of people every day would come to work and leave for home. And there would be moments where, where you know, maybe American temporary visitors to London would stop and say, you know, what's this iron, naked iron man doing on the, on the pavement? And they would want to ask somebody who they felt belonged more than they did, <laughs> uh, what's going on here? You know, why, why is this silent, rusty body here? And then that would then lead to maybe people looking around and seeing that there were another 27 uh, on the skyline. And, and it was a really... Uh, lovely thing, I think, that that was a sort of catalyst for then not only the visitor, but also Londoners themselves perhaps becoming more aware, uh, looking up and, and becoming more aware of the, of the nature of this, in a way, second body, the, the, the constructed world that we live in. Um, but broadly speaking, I think, the, the, again, this is a questioning, you know, where, where in the time now that we that we live in where all of us spend more time, as it were, relating to humanly made structures, whether that can be the hermeneutics of you know, Wittgensteinian philosophy or uh, dealing with, with, with the internet. Um, we are, we are, we are in, in some senses, enmeshed in our own uh, constructed world. And the idea of those pieces was just to, again, in the same way that another time, uh, another place does it, just to say, there is a wider world and, and uh, uh, it's there waiting for us. And your question about the, the theological dimension um, prompted me to think about the strange fact that for most of Western history, one of the central images has been of a wounded, naked, and vulnerable human body. As if in all sorts of different buildings and structures and contexts of meaning and activity, our attention has been very, very quietly, but very 
obstinately directed back to that as a place we can't escape from, the vulnerability of a body in which, for a Christian, God has met us. When we are living, as Anthony says, in an environment where we're constantly, increasingly dealing with man-made structures, products, we're dealing with geometries, how does that... What, what's the contemporary equivalent of having the crucifix in every room? What's the contemporary equivalent of being reconnected with that inescapable materiality which grows, which decays, which suffers, which weeps, which eats and makes love and all the rest of it, and which, you know, which dies. Um, so I think there is, there is a, a theological way of looking at that too, and the surprise of encountering, which has been so well described, the surprise of encountering an image of a body where you're not expecting it. A body which is questioning you as, as bodies do. I think there's a, you know, a real spiritual um, trigger of some sort there. I think it's important to me, uh, you could say, I, I, I question the, the history of the statue, which is always about either, either in a way, the heroic or, or the the um, materialization of a, of a collective memory in terms of you know, m most, most of our tribal objects, if you go down Whitehall, are, are of that order, usually male, military, uh, or regal. Um, it's very important to me that these, these works are sky-clad. In other words, they're naked. They are... Uh, they have no name, and they exist. Those on the floor, there are always four, four on the common ground, and uh, you know are, are massive again. And there, you, you can confront their stillness, objecthood, materiality, and you can touch them. And then those that are on the horizon that you can see, but you can't touch because you can't get to them. But then they're the ones you can imagine. That, because you don't know where this field ends. Um, and I think that, that engagement of the palpable, the perceivable, and the imaginable in terms of how this, this thing then maybe infiltrates a highly instrumentalized world. I think that the, the, the fact is that we, whether we like it or not, we are immersed in a late capitalist kind of, we're all workers in this, in this sort of uh, anthill that curiously is collectively construed, but nobody's in charge. And I think, on the whole, none of us really believe in, but we, we work for it mercilessly. The, I think the, 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 the idea of this intervention is to say, around us we have made this construction that in some senses represents our values. And we deserve to reflect upon this thing that we have collectively made that in a way perhaps we don't take enough 
notice of and enough responsibility for. Let's hold. That's great. Let's try and get two more questions in at least. Taking up the points that Rowan and Anthony have just made, actually, and Rowan saying that a central image of Western art, the central image of Western art for 2,000 years, has been the, the wounded man. Um, is there a feeling that art... I, I come to this as an interested outsider, uh, in, as, as, as Tim defined them. Um, is there a sense that the art world, or that many in the art world, are afraid of religion, and maybe the religious world afraid of modern art as challenging to each other and things that they are, would instinctively have nothing to do with. Clearly there's no such fear between, between you and we've been privileged to hear the most wonderfully um, creative and empathetic discussion between you all but I just, I just wondered if you felt that if you like each side is missing a trick by not engaging with the other more generally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no but I, I don't <laughs> I don't know why uh, the church doesn't commission Well it does in parts. But, but more boldly. Mm. Okay. Maybe economics, but maybe I'm <laughs> But you should come to the, come to the uh, seminar tomorrow. Mm. But, uh, no, but it is a reason. There, there is a lack of risk in a lot of commissioning. Yes, the, the temporary ought to allow risk to happen. In other words, it doesn't have to be an altarpiece for eternity or for a few hundred years. Mm. It could be something for six months. Indeed. And that's why I think um, a church which which is committed to allowing um, events to take place which open, which reorganize, which transform, whether they are the event of an installation or the event of a drama or a dance. One of my friends, Claire Henderson Davis, has been um, taking around some English cathedrals representations of the Stations of the Cross in dance. Some cathedrals have slightly frozen at the thought of, and some have embraced much more positively. So it, it can be done. I suspect from the church side, the anxiety is a bit to do with control, as has been suggested, a bit to do with an unspoken but quite deep, well, what have we got to learn feel, and a bit to do with the fact that we, we haven't ever, quite since the Reformation, thought through what, what we, I say we here as... as an Anglican with a reformed history behind. Um, what, what we want of art or think of art or want to do with it. And if I were guessing, but Anthony will put me right, um, from the artistic side, I guess it's the, the history of a church which has wanted to micromanage the arts and also to functionalise in exactly the way that you know, as actually has just been saying, art tries to, to move beyond when it's doing its job. Yeah, I, I was um, asked by one of the oldest monasteries in South Korea to make a, a Buddha. And I was, I was quite intrigued by this, and I was visited by some emissaries of the abbot. Um, they have uh, these 800-year-old um, um, sutras, carved on wooden blocks in wonderful wooden buildings with, with clay floors. And I, I, I loved the feeling of this place. But once it became clear that actually this object was going to be worshipped because they were Mahayanan Buddhists um, and there was going to be incense placed before it and uh, this was going 
to be in some senses seen as a you know, dwelling place of Buddha nature, I, I became very disenchanted and I, I'm afraid I had to withdraw. Um, and I think that that is a, a real problem. The, the, and I guess that's also partly to do with this icon pro pro problem. Um, but in a way, it's very important to me that part of the openness of the work, you could say, is its voidness of any... Uh, you know, I, 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 I think that the work resists... Some people would say that it fails totally. To, it resists aura. I want those, those bodies in the sea to be like black holes. They, have, they, they, they may be massive, but they, they, they are a representation of a work of art made in the time of mechanical reproduction. They are, there is no one, one of them. A hundred is an abstraction, but it's about the repetition of an image and through, through its repetition, the loss of the unique manifestation in favour of something, hopefully, for me anyway, more open. It's, a re it's really, this is, an, again, absolutely at the nub of, I think, what we need to be talking about, um, which is how... I mean, I, I, I am of the opinion that actually the White Cube or the gallery, or anyway, the invitation of the space that art offers the imagination of a, of a participating viewer. I'm passionate about this, what, what Gombrich called the beholder's share and what Duchamp called you know, the, the viewer doing half of the work that actually this is an invitation for a kind of co-production of meaning and value, and it can't be, be predetermined. So that, that, that's, that's also about this, you know, um, in a way, if, if religious commission de depends on, in, in, in a sense, um, the icon becoming numinous, in terms of an aura, in terms of a uniqueness uh, peculiar to maybe its, its, its place in a history or its place in a story, I think it becomes problematic for me. Let's have one more question. You may not, a uh, lot of people maybe haven't seen your work at the Deichtorhalle in Hamburg, mm. you, you, that is yours, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Okay, so that really ties... <laughs> just brilliant that it was. <laughs> that really ties in with what you've just said and the way in which you want people to be involved. And so let me just explain. There's this huge warehouse um, which has been given over to art. And what Anthony did was instead of uh, laying his work nicely on the floor, um, one had to go up these huge steps. Um, having taken your shoes and socks off. Yeah, having hopefully. taken his shoes and socks And then he, he made a platform um, which was kind of dangerously in the middle of the space. And, people <laughs> and then people could actually jump up and down on it. I fell asleep. And, I mean, <laughs> and deeply. Pe people, yeah, people were laying on a canopy which was painted black, and so therefore it had reflection of ourselves. And, but people were dancing, so people were doing sort of prayer or yoga or whatever. 
And so that represented total immersion and participation. And then going on to the church side, that in a sense, um, you know, the kind of, the church needs a greater democracy of um, our, ourselves, the icon of ourselves, basically. And that's what the church has never, ever understood, um, which is what Rowan is kind of grappling with here. But that's what you're... I like you're, that. You're, I like that idea. I mean, I think that the Buddhists would say we all have Buddha, Buddha nature. We all are, in some senses, an incarnation of you know, the potential of, of being. I think, you know, Boyce would say, you know, we're all, we're, we're all artists because we're all creating a collective world. And, and um, that piece, which was called Horizon Field Hamburg, was actually a big monochrome with six tons of black paint uh, that was a shiny black mirror. And it was suspended by eight cables, very narrow cables. It was 50, 50 meters long, 25 meters wide, and hung seven and a half meters from the floor. But it was a, I like the word, I mean, it was an agora. It was a, a place which through your um, bare feet, you were aware of the vibrations of everyone on that surface. You could affect that surface collectively, but the surface also affected you individually. It was a place in which you could, you could get this whole thing. It was, it was a freely swinging horizontal painting laid on its back. And if you moved uh, and then stopped, you could, you could start the whole thing moving. So you could say this was a, this was a physical demonstration of an idea of a collective <coughs> space and the emergence of a collective reality that was the exact, that was a membrane that transmitted, as it were, the individual to the group and the group to the individual. I was very proud of that piece. It's another example of something that was made very specifically in relation to this space. And you know, it cost much more than the Angel of the North to make, but it was only there for three and a half months. But it was absolutely fantastic the way that actually the so-called audience or the so-called viewers really made the work. They, they made the work. And exactly as you said, which is really gratifying to hear, the varied responses from, you know, girls doing cartwheels to people like, like Tim here, just l l lying and, and, and watching the ceiling move as this thing gently swayed. It could sway up to one meter 78 uh, in any direction. That's quite a bit. I mean, for, for a bit of the world that big to become unstable, um, yeah, well, it took a bit of engineering, <laughs> but it, it, it was a wonderful thing because it was, it was, there was no object really. It was the life that was collectively raised from, you could say, the, the quotidian to this floating place and from which you could look out at the city and it's inverted the idea of the museum as a treasure house for unique objects. And people would just look out because we removed all of the obscure glass in the roof so that people could look out. And it was absolutely wonderful. You could see people pointing out to friends. Oh, you know, that's where I work and that's where mum is and kind of seeing the world from this, seeing the real world as a representation, you could say, of itself and pointing out their place in it. Anyway, and people it from the outside pointing 
out the people taking part in the work. It was an inside-outside. There was an implicit, well, explicit criticism of the church. Do you want to respond? <laughs> do, do, would you like the last word on this? Of course. Good. <laughs> that set of images, of course, takes us back again to the, the subtle, almost imperceptible movement of an installation like transport, and it's the swaying motion that comes to mind again. But just to come back to the, to the question of the church's democracy or lack of it, it's curious, isn't it, that, that one of the most definitive and original images that we have for the church in Christian scripture is, is a body, very explicitly described in terms of the impact made by every portion on every other. This is intrinsically a participatory, universalizing community. And after 2,000 years, we're still, I think, working at, at what exactly that means or how to do it or how to live it. And that's why I'm... I'm coming back repeatedly to this sense of the identity we, we make together and how Anthony's sculptures in particular focus that as a question for me, for church and society, for myself as a person, for all of us, which is why I'm grateful for them. As the bishop said to the artist rather than the artist said to the bishop, <laughs> which is how we should end, I would like to say, although we're supposed to be keeping quiet on this, but Anthony has already told the press, so let's keep it amongst ourselves, that in just every year's time, Anthony will make a major intervention and exhibition here at the Academy. And I hope that that occasion, no pressure, Anthony, you put into play everything we've talked about tonight, but I hope <laughs> there is the opportunity to hear Rowan engage again with Anthony's work. Thank you all for coming, but in particular, thank you to Rowan Williams and Anthony Gorman. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.